welcome to Living a Sensory Life, a podcast that I've started talking all things sensory. So my name's Becky, I'm the founder of Sensory Spectacle, and I've run this podcast to teach you all about sensory processing disorder. We're going to be interviewing people, we're going to be sharing strategies, I'm going to be giving you research, and I'm also going to be explaining things to you so that you can help to understand the child or adult you care for or support just that little bit better. everybody so um this week's podcast is all about how we can understand behaviors at home specifically relating to someone's sensory processing needs and i'm really really excited to have ellie chapel here to talk with us about how this has been such an important topic to understand um at home so hi ellie hello um would hi you... becky thanks for having me on this week no, it's great. I'm I'm really excited that you could be here. Would you mind just kind of telling us a little bit more about you, your family, why sensory has been such a such an important thing for your family's life? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I have three children. Uh, my eldest is probably the one that people might know about. That's Ella. She's deaf blind, and my son is actually deaf, and I myself have deafness so uh in terms of sensory in our family we have quite a lot of sensory loss um and we i've grown up with it and probably not understood it as well as i do now and looking back can now understand some of the issues i went through um having actually had to look at how my children cope within school within the home particularly around things like noise um concentration fatigue tiredness and with Ella in particular because it's a dual sensory loss and she's deaf blind so 95 percent of her incidental learning is gone and it's working with the five percent to maximize on what it is she's learning how she perceives the world how do we um, understand more about that perception without bringing our own bias to it about what we think she should look and see and know And so um, I've been really lucky to work with some professionals, um, qualified teachers of multi-centre impairment, uh, qualified teacher of hearing impairment and qualified teacher of vision impairment. So it's been really useful working with those people to understand a lot more, but also with our SALT and various other people who I can explain about. There's quite a big team of of diverse practitioners around as well. So yeah, um, we've learned quite a lot and I would say where we started and where we are now are two different spaces, but that's that's just the continuing journey. Yeah, and I, and I can imagine it's been quite a journey that you've been on to be able to get to where you are now. And many families can probably not even start to think about the journey that you've been on in order to get the support in place for Ella and, and your son. But are you able to, to share with us some of um, the specific difficulties that you may have come across in regards to understanding some of Ella's characteristics for their kind of real purpose and real meaning? Um, so I think one of the main things in education in particular was understanding how to teach her. So um, there was a, I think... And I'm, I'm, I don't know, and I need to check my facts and figures, but in terms of sensory loss children, I'm not sure 
there are huge numbers compared maybe to other diagnoses. So in classrooms, um, Ella was asked to do things like sit at a table with a piece of paper. She was handed a pen several times and the interveners are saying um, she's blind. And um, that was quite hard for people to accept that holding a pen with a piece of paper for a blind child wasn't really going to work. Um, now, Ella did have vision previously, so in my mind, I was thinking she'd probably get it eventually, but, you know, we're not really helping her learn explicitly. And that word explicit is really important. So when we work with our QTMSI, one of the things she taught us about was if you present Ella with a book with a fluffy thing on it, does that actually present the concept of a sheep? And we were like, no. <laughs> so she said, so where, how is she going to learn about that very basic concept of sheep? You're going to have to take it to the animal and introduce her to it so that she can smell it, touch it, feel it, feel the warmth, the heartbeat, maybe understand, hear the sound. And then that will become her perception of a sheep. It may still not look anything like your visual perception of a sheep, but in her mind, when you talk about that now, she has a concept that's a thing, a real thing. And she was really focused on it's about the realness of what you're teaching in terms of what is in the actual world and that the explicit nature of the teaching because when you don't have the incidental learning and you can't observe and learn through observation or following your peers or watching what your teacher's doing, you have to explicitly teach the steps and understand how you get from A to B, but also experience it. So it's very, it's a very different way of learning. Um, one I'm really used to, but I can understand probably in education settings, it's not the majority. So it's hard to understand how important it is but actually I've come across now a lot of children who would benefit from that kind of experiential learning more than um, what I would say is more 2D it's very 3D learning so it's it's actually benefits everybody but it's just a different way of approaching so yeah we've been really lucky in that the professionals we have around us really help develop that and support it out and Ella's at the stage now where she's looking at ASDAL and things like that. So, but we did use a very specific curriculum for the early stages. Mm. And I think focusing on that multi-sensory aspect of learning is so important for all children, not just children that may have a sensory loss. And if I think about when I was at school, some of the things that I remember now are because it was that multi-sensory experience going to the farm yeah. and smelling the farm and feeling the wind and the rain and trudging around in the mud and yeah. everything that your body experiences at the same time um and you probably know my workshops are very much based on that experience side of things if I can help people to experience how something may feel how can we then relate that in regards to our empathy and our better understanding of it and I think as human beings, that's just a natural way that we do learn about things. It's just become this way that in education, we learn in a very kind of visual and auditorily way where we sit down and we're being taught. We're looking at books. We might go out on trips and do things. Um, and so then when we have people that may have sensory difficulties or differences actually that's when people f can find it really difficult because they're having to think in a way that maybe doesn't feel natural for them. Um, 
are you able to expand on maybe some of the ways that um, you have things that you have learned about your daughter in regards to the way that she experiences things through her senses that maybe were new to you or you hadn't thought about or you know have you been on a trip and you've noticed that Ella's responded in a certain way to an environment and you you might not have been aware of that particular situation or experience yourself until she'd opened your eyes to it yeah so I would say that even within experiential learning we've taken a massive journey because um perhaps where things are being planned Again, it's from our perspective, and we haven't sat where she's sitting. So until you actually go through the experience and then you think, none of that worked, she didn't like it at all. <laughs> so what didn't we get right? And and that's what we bring it back to is what did we not understand? Because the, Nicola, our teacher, who's an amazing woman, she always says, think about perception you are you are basically perceiving that she will in, learn and interpret it this way but you do not know that that is her perception and because she's not using words to confirm anything or you're having to look at the nuance of her body language a lot and understand her signing and the million ways in which she communicates without words because she doesn't really need them so it's very much the onus on us to be really, really, really good at observation. And we've gone to things like, for example, going to the farm and doing a farm trip for her isn't something she particularly enjoys. And the reason for that is it's a very big space. It's very bright and it's quite loud. And actually, she probably would... Um, the times when she's engaged with animals better has been on like a smaller space setting, maybe where she's met a dog, somebody's dog, and they've and they've just been in a small space and it's been in a real setting of somebody's home with a dog. So this dog lives with this person. It's got that experiential context, but it's not within let's go to the farm and do the farm visit thing and it's just sensory overload for her. She's She can't cope with that. And I see that becoming, oh, we'll go and do this and we've done a sensory experience. I'm like, really? For who? Because <laughs> I find it stressful because I find it very noisy cause, because of my hearing loss. Mm. And I'm thinking, gosh, if I'm struggling with this, how is she coping? <laughs> so um, I think it's taking it back to what, do, what actually works for children and not being afraid to be really simplistic about that. Because I think we feel we always have to add loads of things in. Um, but with Ella, if the basics aren't there and really solid, you, you can't sort of go to the next level anyway. It sounds ridiculous, but this is the kind of thing that I think gets missed mm -hmm. a lot is that basic foundation level of explicitly teaching so that then the child has the the um, ownership and the choice to be able to develop it out to the next level of experiential learning. And I think what they miss is like having the skill to then take it up and teaching that skill is very simple and it's, it's a lot of repetition and it's a lot of time invested. So we spend a lot of time there and then let her lead us further on once she's embedded the skill she'll take us to the next level of understanding and that's where we have to then think what is she showing us here because her preferences are very different to ours I mean any individuals are 
But for example, she loves echolocation. So she'll spend a lot of time drumming with resonance on a wall. And it's a wall in our house. It's actually a false wall. So it's got that resonance. And it's an entire wall, which she will spend up to 40 minutes doing sort of an, what people would call it intensive interaction. I would say it's just a conversation between her and an intervener and they copy back and, and it's actually music, but it's also she knows how that sound reverberates around the corridor. And for Ella, that's huge enjoyment. But if you're looking in a standard education space, people might say, come on, time to move on. Come on, come on. And you just, you know, it's putting the brakes on and saying, but why? Because for her, the way she learns, and she is learning rapidly, we have to be able to go on a journey of discovery that isn't our world. So it's having the confidence to do that. And I think that's really what she's always continually teaching us. She pushes us out of our comfort zone every day because being deafblind, her world is completely different. But so is everybody's and anybody who struggles with standard stuff and I'm not really sure what the standard stuff I don't think it fits very many people anyway now (laughs) it's just kind of we all do it talk to ourselves through it but um you know I think in the 10 years 15 years maybe we won't see that so much but um kids like Ella are obviously already there and she needs it reduced so it's it's us fitting into her world more and being really aware of what that experience of learning is and what makes it difficult what makes it easier and uh, quite often like I say it's about us going out of our comfort zone yeah and I think the one thing that I love about when you're talking about your daughter and you're talking about the education that she has and that you learn from her is that you are changing things up you know I go into classrooms and I run training and I teach teachers about recognising these sensory needs, but the thing that they find difficult is that they find it difficult to look at that individual person because they've got so many other people that they're supporting in that one setting. And if we can take that time out and really get to know that person and understand and recognise their sensory needs, we can then change the way that we approach their teaching, but also learn from them. And I know that you've done a really, really good TED Talk um <laughs> would you just be able to mention i know that you've got um a story in your ted talk about um a shoe um and yeah. whether you might be able to just kind of share with some of our listeners about what that kind of meant to your family when you really understood kind of the purpose of what your daughter was doing um so ella was she would repetitively play. We had this um, crate, it's a green crate, and it's full of shoes, and it's like every kind of shoe you can imagine. And everybody just chucks their shoes in when they come in. And she sat one day, and she just went through it repetitively, uh, every shoe. She sort of turned them upside down, she pulled them open, she felt up for laces, she felt laces, she pulled Velcro. And then she'd sort them left to right. And I still not 100% sure what we, we thought we had a theory on left and right, what was going one way, what was going another. Anyway, she did this like twice a day, every day for nine months. And I was observing people's reactions to this, thinking they're going to hate this. This is really repetitive and it's going to end up 
where I think it, and it did. Um, so by about six months, I think the professional view was this is obsessive and you need to stop her because um, it's not good. And I was just like, yeah, but why do you think that? Because I haven't even grasped what she's doing and I've been watching this for six months. So like, I don't know what she's doing yet. And I get where you're coming from. You think it's obsessive, but uh, in what way? Why Why is it obsessive if you don't actually know what she's doing? So you can't make that logical argument. So we carried on watching. And then, like I say, eventually, I, I got to a point, she does this with me, and it's like the burn point of like, oh, my God, can I hold on to wait to see what she's going to show me? Or am I going to fall before she gets her? And it is usually about my ability to stay with her in that trust space long enough to say, there you go, she showed us. Whoa, Ella, Ella, open the door. You see, I get it now. And and it's like, it really is, again, about the fact that we fall before she, she does. She's got way more... Um, she's got a massive ability for continuing this for as long as is needed because she's completely focused on what she's learning about. And we actually lose the will before she does. So at nine months, this is when she kind of put the shoes down. She got up, walked across to the hall uh, chair in the hallway and she sat down and she literally stuck out her foot and she just went boots. And it was like this lightning bolt. And I was like, oh my God, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. So she's just spent nine months understanding the shoeness of a shoe. And the shoeness of a shoe was what it was about. So shoes for us, um, we can look around a room and go, that's a shoe, that's a shoe, that's a shoe. And they are like umpteen different varieties. But if you can't see it and you can't really rely on, I don't know if people do listen to how shoes fall, but certain shoes sound differently to others. If you've just got your, you've got to use your hands as your eyes then it would take you an inordinately long time to understand the difference between that shoe, that shoe, that shoe, and that shoe. And if you're going to understand the concept of shoes, what they're for, why we use them, why do you keep putting those things on my feet? I don't like them because I don't really know what they're for. Then you have to investigate and repetitively investigate and learn about it until you have embedded the concept. So the next time she touches with light touch, a shoe it's a shoe because I spent a long time learning via touch that all of these things are the same thing so the shoeness of a shoe so it's the same with she's at the moment doing the clothesness of clothes as we call it so her morning being 13 as well she's quite into how she looks and but with Ella everything's a lot longer but she's learning about so holes is her current obsession size of holes head hole hand wrist holes and which bits her body and holes is her current like why do we have holes we have holes all over life what are they for why do we have holes that's a different hole to that hole to this hole to this. and again if you think you can't um if you don't if you get that fast input then um no people keep phoning me that's terrible (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, I'm losing my thread now. You're but, talking about... uh, yeah, so basically, she is very interested in the nest. So it's like the shoeness of shoes, the clothes of clothes. And it's, it really, it just, it was literally a light bulb moment for me. And, and I thought, you know, this is what we miss if, we, if we're not careful. I think lots of children show us this. And it's, it's what children do. They learn through repetition. And I think we've lost patience for that because we are, as I talk about in the TED, you know, we're driving for this linear eye of the needle and I'm not sure who's going to get through that eventually I don't think I would mm. anymore and yet I spent the day with Virgin on Monday and that business is craving diversity individuality either they embrace it they do not have a uniform policy they don't care what your hair looks like and they want your creative brain and your different way of looking at life that's what the business needs so I'm like looking at education looking at there going okay this doesn't fit. <laughs> so it's like the way Ella's doing it and the way lots of children do it is to be valued and mm-hmm. to be learned from and equally valued alongside children who may prefer sitting at a desk. I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong way and it's all got to be there. I think it is that it doesn't work for everybody and we've got to be really aware of the number of children who, like Ella, either have a sensory loss or have different needs but you know, they do it differently, but they are going towards the same goal. It's just a different way round. Mm. And I think not dismissing that because that comes with a set of consequences that can last for a very long time. Our actions, you know, when we don't understand. So, yeah, it, it took me a while to get it. But like everything, she's very patient and she really waits and she's kind of like, they will get this eventually. And then we did. And it was like, oh, my goodness, of course, of course. Perfect sense, of course, Ella. It just, you know, it took nine months to get to understand what it was. So it it does take an inordinate amount of time, I think, but it's really beneficial because the the learning is actually quite accelerated with Ella. She's very motivated. She's consistently driven, but that's because she has to do a lot of repetition. She has to do a lot of embedding the understanding for herself of this world I'm in that I can't see and I don't really understand. Why do you keep calling it a thing and I don't know what that is? So to get to where we are visually or auditorily, she has to take a much longer route and we've got to wait for that. But again, you probably see that with lots of different children. I think it's the patience of the adults and the understanding that that doesn't mean that someone can't learn. It just means they take a very different route. Yeah, and I think actually that understanding that there's a purpose behind it but us being patient and giving it the time you said that Ella is so patient and think about the amount of people that use their home life to regulate so so many students I know can follow a routine in school however then I have parents coming to me saying why do they do this why do they do that when when they come home whereas at school they'll have a conversation with a parent and the teacher will say no, we don't recognise any of that within the classroom. And for a parent, that can be so difficult for them because they then feel like, are they making things up? Why is my child, you know, being like this at home? And it's such a common conversation that I have to help parents understand. And 
it's still learning, it's a safe environment, it's an environment where they're loved and they can be themselves and where they can do those things in order to support themselves to feel their best, to feel good. Um, it's so difficult to help everyone to understand we have to really understand that person why are they chewing on that thing why are they jumping on the sofa continuously why do they find it really difficult to sit down for their dinner it's because their body requires that amount of sensory input in order for them to be able to do those everyday things that maybe the rest of us have learnt to do to follow other routines yeah, I agree. And, and um, there's a fabulous book by Anders Hansen um, around movement. And he also talks about the necessity of movement for stress management. So when we are effectively stressing children out, which we do quite a lot nowadays, um, and their cortisol is like up in the where it shouldn't be, and it's being maintained there, which is really not good for you their desire for movement is much greater because movement alleviates stress, obviously. And I think children are natural movers and we've we've come away from the understanding and idea that that's okay. So I spent my life as a child upside down, as did most of my friends. And my daughter, my youngest, is, is a huge mover and she needs to move all the time. And she actually needs to rock and stand and do this when she's learning. Um, but... I've noticed loads of people do that. I've watched adults do the nursery rock and think, why are they doing that? Is that because they held babies or is it just because they just need to move? And it's because we we have these intrinsic body need, bodily needs, like functional needs. Um, you know, your brain's telling your body to do certain things because it actually helps you learn. And then we're sitting there going, we don't want you to move though. And I'm like, well... That's not going to work. Why are we so rigid? I don't get the rigidity. Yeah. And I think when I watch somebody like Ella, who I would say is like, if you look at the sharp end of the wedge, she's right up there with the, there's an extremity. And, you know, she's got lots of things going on and it's very, very different. But then at the other end of the wedge, you've got children like my youngest who still have very similar needs to Ella, actually just in a more diluted form because she does, she's got her sight and she's got her hearing. So, you know, in terms of extremity, she's less, but she still has that need to move. She still has that need to regulate. And we all do. That's a human thing. We've got to be able to regulate. We've got to be able to move. And it's really healthy that we do, because if we don't and that stress level maintains, you'll get sick. So it's just really, I, I spoke to a, a professor of stress recently. He was fascinating to talk to about cortisol. And, and he was basically saying that is you know, a lot of the inflammatory diseases and things that we see is because we maintain levels of a stress hormone we're not supposed to have. And if you move or if you self-regulate or something like that, you're calming your body down. So you will not get into this sort of danger zone. And then you won't see self-destructive behaviors or upset or distress yeah. or, you know. And, and it's very, very logical when you just sit and look at it in like that very sort of sort of sliced up sense which I wouldn't advocate silos for anything but if you're trying to understand the process without being um combative because that's not what this is about for me it's about understanding the logic of what we're seeing and there's so many coming through and you just think 
it's 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 shifting into that human way of learning and being because we are so diverse as a population mm. uh, and we always seem to be like that so making us all try and fit isn't going to work because we're all going to end up on the outside yeah. <laughs> so yeah no, yeah, I, I think it's uh, the the yeah. whole kind of hormone thing and stress was something that came up quite a lot last year, and um, I did a few videos about it. But when I was explaining it, I had lots of people, teachers mainly, contact me and say, "You know what? I didn't even consider that the routine that a student might be going through during the day actually can build up so much stress." And so then if that isn't released, i.e. if they don't go outside and play or if they if it's a wet day and they don't have, you know, playtime or that opportunity just to get outside, how much that then impacts the rest of their day or evening at home. And I'm so glad that you referenced that book because it's such it's such a good kind of read to really understand for all of us. It's something that we can all relate to because when I'm stressed, if I go outside for a walk, it doesn't matter if I walk to the shop and get some milk or if I go for a big walk in the, in the woods or something, I feel so much better. And it's just having that release of that cortisol and all all the other things are kind of built up and the beauty of nature um, as well to be able to, to help us calm and relax in that way um, and I think when you're someone Ella um she really struggles with self-regulation mm. and so it's something we've again had to explicitly teach um so after every activity Ella has to have a processing space so immediately after activity she we do deep pressure facial massage she likes loads of different things in her toolkit but or she wants to sit in silence and you just need to leave her alone because she's trying to actually go through what she just did because of that lag that she has my son has it as well and it's just they need longer to think about it and process it because it's going a different loop Mm. because of their sensory loss and various and so that's as critical as the learning time how and do if she you... doesn't have that we've breached incredibly well i would say in her most stressed period in education when she lost her sight that's what happened it blew up mm. so you know you know where it can go and it's mitigating that and as adults i think we've got a responsibility to understand enough about what stress does to all of us and we must mitigate that and not uh, sort of supersede it with a drive for whatever this mark of success is. Because I think a mark of success for my daughter left her with a life-changing trajectory. So it wasn't a mark of success at all for her. It was just, um, you know, we've run out of ideas. And that was like, well, there are ways of this being. And, and now we've shown in the last five years that actually she's completely capable of learning. She's an exceptionally intelligent child. She's very competent, but she needs very specific things. And that is when you explicitly teach, I also need to process and I have to have. And interesting, she goes very quiet. So the team will say, we know when she's finished processing because she starts chatting again. So she goes very, very quiet. And then all of a sudden it'll be, she starts chatting and they're like, okay, she's done it. That's fine. We can start talking again, but they know to stay quiet when she's quiet because that's also when she can be at her most overloaded point. So it's just really subtle things. And again, like you said, 
Sorry, Becky. Um, <laughs> it's okay, you're a popular lady. <laughs> and my cool thing off. But uh, yeah, so I think what's really key is that people have developed that relationship. So they really know, you know, it's like getting to know anyone. They know. Uh, and the thing is, with children who don't use words first, it is, I, d- I don't really care how long it takes. I think this argument, well, I've got, to, well, these children, I think, well, education as a system is going to have to shift because these children without words it's a different language within our our society and we're going to have to get to grips with it because this is how they are and this and they deserve to be here as much as anyone so we have to learn their language their culture how they do things and help it fit into the share and share this space we can't keep saying we don't have time for that that's that's just not forward-thinking, responsible, or building for the future, particularly when you've got companies who are saying, we want this diversity, and these children might just take 10 years longer than everyone else to say something. They might never say something, but they add in different ways, and we learn a lot through that. So I think it's we've got to stop saying we don't have time for this mm. because it's critical to our understanding of a large proportion of our society and, and um, I think that's what we've learned the most with Ella is how much it is a challenge for us rather than her yeah. <laughs> at times. Yeah, yeah. And, and getting us to think about things differently. And I know that's what your kind of key message is on, on social media is getting us to you know change the way that we approach things and that we think about things from, when we're supporting people. Um, could you just share with some, with the listeners, how you I know you've got very good teachers but how do you explain some of the ways that um Ella self-regulates to other people that may support her and maybe they they didn't have an understanding or you know it's the first time they've met Ella so they're really learning about her how do you um approach kind of explaining that to support workers how she yeah so so why she's doing certain things um so i would just say if it's a professional or it's a community or it's somebody who's never met her before um the first thing is you'll get people sort of staring you know the eyes widen and they sort of like what's that and the team and i the team are really good at this as well now so they're very comfortable in saying um this ella's deaf blind and she needs to do this because actually this helps her do da, da, da. And they have some comparative ways of saying, you know how you have to, well, this is her version of that. Great. Yeah. So we've tried to like make it easier for people to understand. And we do a lot of our learning and a lot of our day is based is centered in humor and um, connection, that sort of relational space where everybody is enjoying being in the learning space rather than combating, you know, this sort of top down version mm. of it. And I think we've just made it really simple and very human and easy for people. And we know with some spaces or people, it's usually around six months and somebody's got it. But it's the consistency of our repetition of taking Ella along, of Ella and them developing the relationship. And it can take a long time. And slowly they become accustomed to the way she does things. And then they'll start to see, that's not that different to me doing this. And I'm like, no, it isn't, is it? So... You do it like this, but she does it like that. So actually you're self-regulating that and she does it like this because she can't see and hear or whatever. 
but actually it's it's what you do it's it's you know taking a break it's having a hobby um a good friend of mine gareth would say it's your flow state so it's about what do you do yeah. to lose yourself to actually calm down to relax and can you do it repetitive some people do embroidery some people do origami some people do um sudoku it's like there's a mass of things we do hobbies yeah but is that not self you know so in ella's case hobbies are different but similar so this is what i need to do but i also need it to sit and think about what you said and that's like a smulling over a meeting yeah. i do it in the car driving i'm sat there thinking what is that all about and i'm trying to process through what i heard and where i think it fits and it's just the same it's just sometimes Ella's can be more explicit because um, actually she doesn't really care who sees. <laughs> and, you know, she's much more at ease with herself in the world than we are. So she's owning it and she's out there doing it and saying, what, what's the problem, guys? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, and we're getting that, getting that, Ella, I promise. <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, and I just love the way that slowly it's changing people's understanding and, and perspectives of not just the person they're supporting but also themselves like you're saying them realizing oh that's what I do when I go for a walk or when I sit down and do a puzzle or something and finding that thing that we can relate to it's probably one of the most effective ways that we can really try to understand the purpose of some of these sensory characteristics that that we observe that we see that we experience um I'd just love to kind of summarise, you've shared so much about Ella with us and I feel like we're all part of part of the family and I, I'd just love you, for you to share with us some, some of the ways that Ella likes to relax. So what does she like to do for fun and for enjoyment and just to be her? What's her favourite sort of thing? Yeah, what does, she, what does she like doing? You said she was a teenager, she, you said she was starting um, yeah. to clue. Um, well, she's very teenage. Um, and this is the other thing. <clears throat> I think there's a perception with disability sometimes, probably not so relevant now, but that a 13-year-old disabled child is not a 13-year-old. Well, she is entirely 13. Um, <coughs> and I'm definitely not on her favourites list right now. <laughs> so mum is kind of ditch for most things. Um, and I'll get... Uh, a kiss in the morning and then told bye-bye and that's her way of saying yes that's lovely but go away now and, and um she's very very close to her intervener team who are effectively her mates as well so they are all sort of between the ages of 18 and 30 um and the ones closer to 30 will now tell you that they're even pushing their luck so she's very if she's out with to the youngest two um it's like a girl's day out but it's it she thrives on the conversation she loves being included in every conversation um and they are really skilled at seeing the very small nuance communication back because essentially it's not always words it's it's all sorts of things but because they've become such keen observers um and i know it's affected their own lives a lot in the way they view everybody but uh, they're able to include, they have very age-appropriate conversations. Um, there's been, she, her favourite thing in the world is people. That's her plaything. That's her toy. If you were to say, what would Ella want more than that, say a person, it's the thing for her. It's, I would like to be in the space where I'm having a connection with somebody who is fun 
who has a joke with me, who can, we can relax together, we can have a laugh together, I can cry with them, you know, it's, it's, it's basically that relationship that is a friend, a surrogate parent, a teacher, everything rolled into one, and it's her favourite thing in the world. She is also very, she loves uh, massage, uh, nails, anything that's like a relaxing support, and she's always loved that. So she likes deep pressure touches. She loves facial massage. She likes um, lots of different things um, that teenagers like as well. And I'm learning what that is. I'm having to check in <laughs> with friends who've got teenagers and say, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I need a book. <laughs> I'm, you know, and I think I, I get the message from Ella quite a lot is. You have a place and I'll tell you when I need you, but otherwise go away. <laughs> so yeah. I just accepted that's where we are right now. <laughs> um, which is, as I say, even though it doesn't matter if, you know, this, there is a bit of a, when I say that to some people, they kind of go, well, don't you go with? I'm like, well, what 13-year-old takes their mother? I mean, it's just not the done thing, is it? So why should she want to? Just because she's deaf blind. Why does that make any difference? Um, and you try it. I've been told to leave. So, you know, I don't push my luck uh, because she's quite determined about that. So it's really funny. There's a lot of, um, and she, she does, you know, answers me back and she'll say, no. Nope. And the girls just kill themselves laughing. And I'm just like, oh, you know, so in this, right, you know, this is where we are. So it's quite funny in a lot of ways. But I think this is the thing. Uh, I was talking about this the other day with someone. I was saying I was brought up, luckily, with a couple of my parents were very diverse people, very broad-minded 40 years ago. And I think it's been incredibly useful because I've ne I've never actually seen – I don't see difference, really. I don't – uh, it's not that I'm not interested. I just, I don't have an issue. And so having, when I had Ella, for me, there was no issue with Ella, but I had an issue with why everybody else had the issue. Mm. And so now, again, at 13, um, she's got, she likes what everybody else likes. And people sort of have this preconceived notion of, because she's disabled, she'll want to go and sit in a sensory room and do lights and stuff now. And I'm like, yeah, she did when she was like six or seven but she's 13 and she doesn't and she's she wants to know more about the world and she wants to know about friends and it's it's really difficult to sit and think about how do I adapt so that she can just you know slot in because the world isn't set up for it easily but if you just give it a go and keep trying like I say she's got a huge amount of patience and she's really really chuffed if you are trying so I think her favorite thing at the moment is just what anyone of her age would be doing and it's it's self-discovery as well she's really learning about herself her emotional landscape she's going through lots of emotional stuff as well which has been interesting but again uh trying to explicitly teach that when you can't see it or model it and and we model it back in terms of the girls have to model it you know through their own gestures and signs and she wants to know what their hair feels like and what their clothes feel like because what are you wearing? What should I wear? Mm. So it's that same thing that compare, comparing me to you that is more prevalent in teenage years as well. So mm. I think so. I many, think she just she loves life. Yeah, I think so many people will find that so helpful to hear because 
we're talking about behaviours at home and yet we're talking about children, you know, your children, your child, whether whether they're an adult, a teenager, whatever, they're still you're still their parent. And I think sometimes when we when we think about the things that we're seeing our children doing, like the moving around, the jumping, the chewing on things or the rocking or whatever it might be when they're at home, we then can sometimes forget that they're that person as well and and they have their own characteristics they can still be cheeky they can still have a personality that is just like you for example (laughs) and and be recognized within other children that age as well and I think just hearing how your daughter is a teenager it's just so lovely to hear because so many conversations I will have will think about oh yeah we we get take her out to the local special educational needs setting which might have a sensory room or we do this or we do that rather than actually just embracing the fact that my daughter is a 13 year old girl just like anybody else and this is what she is interested yeah. in um, and I just think it, it's such a such an important thing to express and stress to other people as well um yeah is there anything else that you wanted to share with people about kind of your sensory journey or understanding or experience being a mum um I just think you know we're hardwired for this stuff and we know how to do it and I think it's just follow your instincts and don't be afraid of following your child because children are not affected with all the stuff that gets to us the older we get. They do know, and I think just be brave about it. I often talk about vulnerability because there's this whole notion of, you know, vulnerability. And I'm like, yeah, but the kids they call vulnerable are usually the ones like my daughter. And yet she totally owns and nails vulnerability every day of the week. She's in the ring. She's herself. She's never going to change for anyone. And we're sitting ringside discussing it, advising on it, looking at it upside down, top to bottom. And actually, they just need us to get in the ring and start walking with them. Mm. Stop being scared about stuff that's really simple. Just because they've got a label or a disability or whatever, it doesn't matter. They're still a child, a human being like anybody else. And... You just got to get into it with them and stop worrying about all the perceptions and societal norms and stuff that really doesn't matter and get to the heart of what they're trying to show you because you then are freer yourself. And I think it helps you accept who you are more, your own self, and then you realise quite how many shackles we've all got on ourselves. (laughs) And these children are authentically walking across the top and and actually have quite a lot of it right in my book. So I think we need to not be afraid to follow that um, and stop thinking that we actually have the answers for everything because we don't, because I think they're sitting within these amazing young people and children coming through and our fellow humans. I think it's just it's just sort of adults need to relax a bit and just stop worrying about quite so much stuff because I really don't think the kids see it like that. And yeah. I think we stress them out sometimes when we constantly focus on it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And and so can you tell us a little bit more about your Flip the Narrative hashtag, how people can find you online and follow you and hear more about kind of you and Ella's yeah. story? 
Well, if they want to find me, they probably just need to search hashtag flip the narrative. That's my passion because I think it's all about turning the whole human conversation on its head. And really what I just said, I was listening to our fellow people a bit more and relaxing ourselves. Um, And I'm on Twitter, which seems to be the space where I am quite a lot. I am on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram, I think. I don't understand social media. That sounds ridiculous. We go, oh, but you're, you're always on it. I'm like, yeah, I know, but it's random what I do. I have no strategy with this. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't really understand. I know you're supposed to do it. It worries me, social media, because I do think, you know, the face-to-face human stuff is really important. However, for a lot of people, that's a space that's really important as well. I just think we have to moderate it like anything, you know, just, just you know, balance it in amongst everything else. Because I know for my kids, they're like, will you get off your phone? So it, it, it really gets in the way, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but it's also a very useful platform for sharing ideas and everything else. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on there and I do as much as I can to sort of just get people to rethink things or reframe it or just turn it upside down have a look at it the other way around and and the title of your ted talk so they can search for that the what sorry the title of your ted talk oh it's the diversity is the key to our survival shoeness of the shoe lovely i think lots of listeners will be really interested in that as well (laughs) um thank you so much for for chatting with us today um hope you've enjoyed it Thank just as much me. as we we have um but yeah hopefully we'll we'll be back speak to you again very soon yeah thanks very much becky it's lovely to speak to you this podcast was brought to you by sensory spectacle you can find out more about our immersive training and workshops on our website sensoryspectacle.co.uk We educate about and create awareness of sensory processing disorder internationally. We travel the world helping parents and professionals to understand specific characteristics relating to sensory processing needs. On our website, you'll find books, sensory support items, classroom resources, as well as information about our trainings. If you have any questions, please do get in touch. We love to hear from you. But otherwise, thanks for listening.